Hi, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. And this is a special episode of the Organic Wine Podcast because what it is is essentially me, unscripted, giving a technical tutorial on how to make clean, natural wine. I recorded it while driving, of course, because here I am in Los Angeles. I was driving to our warehouse to pick up some wine. I had some time. I hit record. So you will hear some ambient driving noise. I apologize for the wine quality. The wine quality? I don't apologize for the wine quality. Dang it. I apologize for the audio quality. And um, I, you know, this is a principle-based approach to making clean, natural wine. Uh because just like an organic viticulture, so much of what you can do as a natural winemaker to avoid issues is preventative. And so this is just to give some tips and principles to think about as you go into this, uh, as you go into winemaking, uh, based on you know some conversations that I've had recently, some requests for help and mentorship, because there's not a lot of info out there. If you are a young natural winemaker or, or a beginning natural winemaker, whether you're young or old, and you there just isn't a lot of technical how-to uh, to know how to navigate the cellar work uh, or any of the work. And uh, that's what this is about. Um, I do want to apologize for my pronunciation of Pied de Couve, which I pronounce as Pied de Couve multiple times so to the point that it's embarrassing um and like i said i uh, am talking extemporaneously as i am now and you may find that i miss certain things you may find i'm ignorant about certain things that i didn't include all the forms of wine that i would love to include like i didn't really make any mention of meads and that whole realm um and sometimes i talk about grapes specifically even though i'm trying to include all types of fruit so please forgive those kind of things as well you know this is as i said unscripted while driving <laughs> and uh and i did my best um but i think there is some good stuff in here and i would love any feedback and questions that this brings to you as well as if this is the kind of thing that you'd like to hear more of if this is something that interests you and you find helpful please let me know enjoy I'm going to start with a little philosophical rumination. Wine does not exist outside of human culture. So whether you think it even has the possibility of being natural depends on whether you see humans as part of nature, humans and our culture as part of nature or not. I do. I think we are part of nature, uh, inextricably bound. And... So the idea of natural wine, uh, you know, isn't, is possible for me. However, it does move the boundary of this divide where I think it usually lies between what is of nature, what is of a natural process versus what is of a human process. Well, all of wine is of a human process. So there isn't some higher superior process that is natural that we can do with wine. It's all shades of a spectrum of human culture and how we approach that. So that's why the label natural wine to me can be, can present some false dichotomies from the beginning. And I just like to disabuse uh, those notions from the get-go because it's more about where you draw the line. 
And that's a personal choice. The one thing that I would say is not a personal choice is the choices that you make about how to grow the grapes or the fruit that you're using to make wine. Let's just say the fruit. Because if you are using agrochemicals and spraying those regularly on your farm, on your fruit, you are making a global environmental choice. Versus, for example, if you add sulfur in the winery, that's a personal choice uh, that doesn't affect anybody outside of yourself and those who choose to drink your wine. And that effect is minimal, and there's good evidence to show that you know, whether it's healthy or not depends on how it's used and who's drinking it. So it's really important, I think, to think about the vineyard first and the idea that <clears throat> those choices are not personal. You are making decisions that impact an entire ecosystems and really the entire planet, the health and vitality of our environment and all the people who live in it. And so I think that's why if there is one thing that natural wine should refocus on or you know, demand focus on and attention on, it is how the grapes are grown. Now, I know the baseline uh, that you might think I would have is organic. And absolutely it is from a certain perspective. However, I feel like my approach is sort of beyond organic and also ecological so that it allows room to regenerate systems that begin in a non-organic way. In other words, maybe you start by buying grapes from a conventional vineyard in an effort, in a intentional effort to support that farmer's decisions to transition away from using agrochemicals. And that means that the first few years when you're buying grapes until you can have some leverage to ask that farmer to change their farming practices in order for you to continue to buy the grapes and perhaps contract to support them through that transition where you are promising to take all of their grapes, regardless of how many or how few, as they transition to a better way of farming. Until you get to that point, you are buying grapes that are being farmed according to the way the farmer has always farmed, which is, you know, in some cases, conventional. And yet the long view of that is that you will be helping to regenerate that land, to change those, you know, to bend that farming practice toward a better, more ecological solution. So I think, you know, there are there is some nuance there. There are some ecological choices and some long-term choices that we have to address and think about as we draw these lines uh, in the vineyard even. Having said that, if somebody's been buying grapes for multiple years from the same vineyard and there's no conversation and no intent to move that needle in a better direction, um, you can't just use the excuse that, well, I'm trying to build a relationship. You know, it's... <laughs> you sort of have to draw a line at some point. And I don't know what that line is, honestly. So it's maybe it's more complicated than we want to admit. Ideally, and this is where the beyond organic aspect comes in, <clears throat> the fruit that we're using 
wouldn't need any and the kind of farming that we're practicing i think in an ideal situation would be so integrated into its ecosystem that it wouldn't need to be sprayed or watered ever so you'd have resilient perennial crops that are perfectly adapted to where they're growing and allowed to grow and being grown and cultivated in a way that they literally just have to be pruned or tended and harvested pruned and leafed or whatever you're doing and then harvested in other words i think our goal as natural winemakers should be no spray and no irrigation and the closer we can get to that i think the better and the the closer i think we get to what should be the ideals of natural winemaking now the other thing about it all starts in the vineyard is it literally the flavor of the of the wine in large part is already set when the grapes cross the threshold into the winery in other words all of the complexity and flavor development and balance and anything related to aroma and taste is you know definitely more than 50% and probably a lot more than that determined in the vineyard and once those grapes are picked what you're doing as a natural winemaker essentially is trying not to screw all that up trying to protect what happened and all of that flavor that was built through the beautiful natural cultivation of those grapes or of those fruit <clears throat> but let's get into the cellar then so and there there are if you want to listen to this podcast there are lots of episodes about farming and how to farm i highly recommend listening to the Greg LaFollette episode uh, just to get a sense of how nuanced and how scientific you can get about determining grape flavor in the vineyard now i do want to say like you know when you listen to that i don't give any caveats that about the techniques that he is promoting or that he is uh you know espousing um but the main caveat of that is that is greg's way of farming and what he has found to work in a sonoma pinot noir vineyard so and i do think a lot of those techniques apply but how they would be used may be very different depending on your circumstance and the type of grapes that you're farming your climate your microclimate your location in the world uh, in fact you might find the exact opposite techniques to be true of the ones that he talks about the point is he he definitely discusses the levers that you can think about pulling in order to tweak grape grape uh, flavor in the vineyard now the same is probably true of apples and i don't know if anybody is experimenting with that and how your care of apple trees throughout the season i don't know if you can do the same thing because the growth isn't as fast with apples throughout the season but i'm sure you know i know that holistically thinking about apples and palm fruit or other fruit does have an impact on apple flavor so you're thinking about how you're mulching and how you're fertilizing and whether you have animals integrated in your orchard or whatever your wherever your fruit is grown all of these things definitely affect the vitality of the the 
fruit and the flavor, as well as the phytonutrients, micronutrients, epigenetics, and morphology of the plants that you're getting the fruit from. It may not be as specific as pulling a leaf here and, and you know, letting a shoot grow there as it can be in viticulture, but holistic thinking about how you are enhancing and fostering the health of your plants definitely has effect on the fruit flavor. And it still is true that once that fruit is picked, most, you know, as a natural winemaker, at least, of course, you can certainly manipulate the heck out of it once it comes in the winery. But <clears throat> most of the flavor of, and they're, you know, of course, you're going to develop tertiary flavors by aging and, you know, or by pressing it sooner versus later by doing whatever, skin contact or not skin contact, whole cluster, not whole cluster, carbonic or not carbonic. All these things definitely in, in, impact flavor, but a majority, your raw material, your baseline, what you have to work with in terms of flavor, at least 50% is determined once that fruit is picked. All right, so now we're in the winery, and uh, I think there are a few really basic things to, to talk about up front that I think are overlooked in terms of their importance to making a beautiful, clean expression of the fruit that you are fortunate to work with. And the first of those is sorting. You know, so if you are getting grapes picked in the vineyard that you aren't picking entirely yourself by hand and selecting just the perfect grapes that you want or the just the perfect fruit that you want or whatever. And now, you know, with other with other fruit, it's a, it's a little difficult. I know there's a lot, a lot of leeway with apples, but I do know that like if you have apples coming into the winery or pears or any kind of palm fruit like that that are starting to smell vinegary, those should not go into your fermentation. Like those are going to add spoilage microorganisms that are already infesting. If you have damaged, bruised fruit that is very damaged and is in bad condition, those should be pulled out. You know, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch is an adage for a reason. And grapes, it's even more so, I would say, because, you know, grapes, it's, a, it's a, like you want pristine grapes to the extent possible based on the vineyard. In fact, what I, what I think you will find if you start sorting your grapes and sorting your fruit it will lead you to a desire to farm better because you'll want the grapes to come in in better condition. <laughs> you will you will want control of what's happening in the vineyard or you will want to you know have more influence on what is happening out there because it's such a pain in the butt to have to sort out and throw away damaged fruit, fruit with bunch rot, you know, fruit that for whatever reason is injured and it, has been exposed because here's the thing when grapes, the minute the grape skin split, whether it's because bees have bitten into it to suck out the juice or birds have pecked at it to get the seeds and juice, or whether it's because you had some powdery mildew that split the grapes or because there's bunch rot or whatever, anytime the skin of the grape is impacted, you open up the potential for microbial spoilage in the wine. And so you want clean, whole, to, the, to as much extent as possible, pristine-looking grapes coming in to the crusher. So a sorting table is absolutely like a tool that every 
winemaker, every natural winemaker should use or some form of sort, whether it's like you're sorting as the grapes are coming into the picking bin and then sort again, do two sorts, sort again as they go into the crusher if, if it's, or, the, or the, the, the bin that they're going to ferment in. I can't stress enough how important that is to wine quality. You know, a split grape basically means, think of it as like, that's a little VA seed. <laughs> um, number two most overlooked thing I think in natural winemaking is cleanliness. Um, now, you, you just, you, you really can't make good natural wine if you're dirty, in a dirty way. Natural does not mean dirty. It could mean dirty-minded, that's fine, but it doesn't mean dirty equipment and dirty surfaces that touch the fruit. So that doesn't mean sterile. That doesn't mean you have to be crazy bleaching. Certainly don't bleach <laughs> if, you, if you don't want TA in your wine. Um, but you know, it doesn't mean you have to go around sanitizing uh, with like, you know, hydrogen peroxide or whatever it is. Um, but you want everything to be clean. You want a clean winery. You want clean surfaces. Never let grape juice or grape skins lie around on barrels or on floors. Like if you overflow a barrel, you know, once you plug it up, pour some hot water over the spilled part, all around the edge of the barrel, you know, all around the bung and let it run down and rinse off all the juice area uh, and let it drip onto the floor, wipe up the floor, hose out the floor. You know, you want a clean thing as quickly as possible because any of that exposed juice, any like seeds and spills and stems and skins from crush that lay around, those are, you know, factories for breeding micro spoilage microorganisms. And then that gets into your wine. Um, so I, you know, I think being a little anal about cleanliness goes a long way as a natural winemaker. So that, and that is highly overlooked, I think, in a lot of natural winemaking. So like anything that touches the wine and anything in the area of the fermentation and barrel storage should be clean and should be free of uh, sticky juice, should be free of skins should be free of any kind of debris from crush and winemaking, you know, any, any unfermented things and even fermented stuff. All right. So those are the number two, first two important things. Um, then when you're getting into fermentation, the, the big thing is, uh, so, you know, you, you don't really need sulfur and you shouldn't use sulfur because you're working probiotically. That's kind of the whole point. Um, what you want is your fermentation to kick off as quickly as possible to start essentially what you want to do is you want to start producing carbon dioxide because carbon dioxide is the way that you will be able to protect your juice. And the way to get carbon dioxide started is, well, if you, there's a couple ways. Number one is a pita cuvee, which means you've already started a couple, you've taken some fruit, you've put it in a blender, or you've mashed it into a bucket, small bucket, and you've got a starter fermentation going that's a nice clean ferment. Like it shouldn't smell like VA, it shouldn't smell like ethyl acetate, it shouldn't smell like vinegar, it shouldn't smell, well, you, you'll, you'll smell ethyl acetate before you smell vinegar. But, um, you know, you want a nice clean bubbling ferment, and then you just 
throw that into the new must when it comes in. So you've gotten that, you've picked those grapes a little early, for example, you've crushed them, native yeasts have started those going, you maybe do a couple of them because maybe a couple of them will spoil, you know? Um, and so you get a couple going and you pick the cleanest, most beautiful smelling one and throw that into your new ferment. So Pied, Pied de Cuvée is number one. Number two, uh, dry ice. Um, if you don't have the opportunity to make a Pied de Cuvée, you can throw dry ice in. And I, I would say whatever of any of these techniques that you're using, the one thing that you want to do that I don't know how often is done, but you want to be able to seal the top of your tank. So whether that means you have a enclosed tank, like giant oak casks or a steel tank, or whether that means you have open fermentation bins that you cover with a tarp and then strap down with bungee cords, um, whatever way you have of sealing it, this is really important because you basically want to trap CO2 in there. Um, P, P de Cuvée, you're waiting, you know, you're going to have some oxygen there. You're not going to be displacing oxygen right away, but your, your idea with the P de Cuvée, you throw that in, you seal the tank or you seal the, the bin, cover it with a tarp and strap it down with bungee cords is that fermentation is going to get going quickly enough. And there's already a little CO2 being produced by the P de Cuvée. And then it's also going to get the rest of the fermentation going much more quickly and you'll, it will start producing carbon dioxide. And you want to trap that in there and displace the oxygen as much, as much as possible, push it up off the grapes at the very least. And sealing your tank is going to help. I can't stress that enough. The other thing that sealing your tank will do is to prevent fruit flies. Now, every fruit flies are everywhere. Pretty much there's fermentation, whether you're indoor or outdoor, it's hard to avoid, but you don't want them getting in your must. Um, so sealing the tank helps that. The reason you don't want get, getting them into your must and fermentations is they also spread VA. They land on little, you know, open, split open fruits that are starting to rot. They smell that and they suck on it. They, and then they fly into your fermentation because they smell that and they bring the little microbes on their feet into your fermentation. So keep the fruit flies out of your fermentation by covering your fermentations and keeping them sealed except for, you know, just open them up for punch down and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that you can do to, so dry ice is another thing. If you don't have a pita cuvee or, you know, just don't have the opportunity to do that, get some dry ice. It doesn't take very much. And once your grapes are sorted, uh, put into their freshly cleaned tank or whatever they're in, just throw a little chunk of dry ice in. I mean, like five pounds is more than enough, usually depending on how big the tank is. And that will immediately start, you know, bubbling and converting to uh, CO2 gas, which will just sit on top of your fermentation and protect it until the yeast multiply enough in that to uh, start producing their own CO2. And then just keep it sealed. That's what I do. Throw the, throw the CO2 in, I mean, throw the dry ice in, seal it, and then just wait. Uh, don't open the tank, don't open the bin, whatever you do, just wait. And then you'll start to see the bin bulging after a couple days. And that means the, CO, the fermentation has really kicked off. And now it's time to start punching it down. And it's kicked off enough that it's bulging, you know, whatever it's in. Or, you, you know, I don't know, if it's in a closed tank, you're not going to see a bulge. But if you're using a tarp or something like that, you'll start to see it bulge and become convex on top. And then, you know, oh, okay, it's time to 
punched down and CO2 is being produced at a high enough rate to protect the fermentation. <clears throat> um, all of this is in an effort. The, the one other technique you could do is if you're in a situation where you have multiple fermentations going and you're sort of overlapping, you pick, you know, grapes on Friday and then you get more grapes on Monday, you know, theoretically those grapes on Friday are going to start producing CO2 and they're obviously going to be producing more CO2 than is needed for their one fermentation vessel. And so you can just pump a, just since you're in a sealed vessel, which is what I highly suggest, just run a tube out the side of that vessel into the new thing and the CO2 will just push out of there and and you'll be using the CO2 from one fermentation to protect the new newly crushed fruit and allow it, you know, to be protected without having to go buy dry ice or add any new, you know, you're just, it's a good way to save CO2, you know, reuse CO2 and make it useful. Um, so those are my big tips about how to do that. Uh, how, and then what you're doing, as long as you keep that tank sealed, you know, the bin sealed, you're going to have CO2, CO2 protecting <clears throat> the fruit as it ferments. Uh, and you really then have to just do very little. The CO2, the natural CO2 created by fermentation is, is going to prevent spoilage. It's going to prevent oxidation. It's going to keep that wine fresh and, and uh, free of VA and other spoilage microorganisms that are aerobic because you've created an anaerobic environment. Um, the other thing to think about, if you can control it, is temperature. Um, things like Brett and VA do much better in warmer temperatures. Like the warmer it gets, the better, the more happy they are. So more oxygen, more temperature, more higher temperatures can lead to greater risk of Britannomyces and volatile acidity being developed in the fermentation. Uh, and other spoilage microorganisms, you know, pediococcus, you know, all these things really like that. They also like uh, high pH environments. So lower acid, generally higher pH environments are also higher risk. And that, where you start to get worried is when you get around 3.5, 3.6. Um, that's where start to move out of the microbially inhibitive pH range into a pH range that above which the microbes are, are uh, not inhibited enough and they can get a foothold and create a bloom in your fermentation. So how do you control pH? Well, number one thing is in, in the vineyard or in the orchard with the fruit. Um, so you want to pick fruit uh, at a ripeness level where you still have decent acidity, obviously. Um, I mean, it tastes good because it creates balance as well. Um, it creates freshness and balance and longevity in your wine, liveliness and, uh, you know, dimensionality as opposed to just flat, flabby wine. But it's also really beneficial to uh, preserving the wine naturally. The problem is, a lot of natural winemakers, at least, you know, what I see in California is a lot of natural winemakers reach out to um, places where they can afford to buy grapes because we're sort of bootstrapping it. A lot of us are small producers, you know, young people who are trying to get things started and 
don't have uh, you know million dollars to start a winery and get the best grapes possible. So we're getting grapes that are grown organically, but maybe not in these amazing areas that have incredible climates for growing grapes. So they're like really hot areas. What happens in those areas is the grapes tend to accumulate sugar and drop acid uh, in an unbalanced way, uh, very rapidly, basically. So you you can have very little sugar and already have very little sugar accumulation and already have lost the pH that you need. And so what I find a lot of natural winemakers doing is just picking super early, but then you end up with this really sort of one-dimensional wine. I mean, you've done the right thing in terms of the chemistry for fermentation and to be able to not use sulfur, but you sacrificed flavor development in the grapes. And I guess that's fine. I mean, you know, it's, if that's, if that's what you want, maybe you like that style. I, I find that a lot of people like a fully developed flavor profile. So there's the trick is how do you get fully developed flavor profile while retaining a pH, you know, that's low enough to be microbially stable without adding sulfur or adding tartaric acid, which are the other two ways that you can protect wine um, microbially when you have a high pH environment. You can lower the pH with tartaric or you can just add sulfur so that you can keep the same pH, uh, but the wine is protected from microbial spoilage with sulfur. If you don't want to add either of those things, then you really better find balanced grapes that come in at the right thing, at the right chemistry. And that's really your only hope. The other thing is do co-ferments. Um, I mean, if you don't, if you can't get grapes the way you want them, one technique I would suggest if you can manage it with your, wherever you're getting grapes is to pick twice, pick once for acid and the second time for flavor development. Um, blend and blend those two together. So you might pick, you know, you might pick in uh, August for acid and you might pick in September for flavor development and you'll just blend those, blend those juices together when the uh, September pick comes in and ferments. So that's, that's one nice thing that you can do that's natural, keeps it natural. I mean, it's a little more work. Sometimes it's hard to get a vineyard to agree to, you know, let you pick one ton now and one ton later. They want you to be done. They, they, it's more work for them and more money for them for you to do that. So it's yeah, that that's the trick there. Uh, but maybe if you're getting from different vineyards and blending, that can work. Uh, blending in general is work. Blending different varieties of grapes. Uh, so some might be developed in more flavor and others are more acidic driven. Um, also different fruits. So like I work with prickly pears. Prickly pears are the pH is near water, like it's close to six. Uh, so it's, I, it's almost impossible to make a wine with that without that wine spoiling in some way. So I have to either add tartaric or I have to co-ferment with nice acidic white grapes. And um, so that's, you know, another technique you can use. Uh, or you can, you know, maybe have your grapes are high pH, so you blend them with some nice low pH uh, apples or pears or berries or things like that that have nice acidity to 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 create that balance in the in the blend and co-ferment so that you don't have to add it. Um, so those are the the principles. You want a low pH environment. You want a CO two rich 
an oxygen-poor environment. And then if, to the extent that you can, you want a cool environment, you want it like definitely under 65 degrees, uh, I think that should be your threshold uh, for ambient temperature if you can manage that. And most, you know, most people who have like a, just even your own sort of window air conditioning unit will get you down below 65 degrees in a small space. And so if you have, you know, you can do that sort of low budget with just running electricity. Um, you know, maybe you're in a facility and that's great where it's temperature controlled. Uh, but yeah, essentially you want cool temperatures. Maybe you're in a place where when you pick, it's already the ambient outdoor temperatures are below 65. Well, hallelujah to you. Aren't you lucky? Um, those of us in California, we have to think about artificial ways of cooling. And if you don't, then you're really relying on CO2 and, it be, and pH, and those two become all that much more important. So that's where you really need to focus on those, especially in warm climate winemaking, I find, uh, you know, really focus hard on those. So the other thing to think about with CO2 is once fermentation is done, that CO2 starts diminishing. So you see your, your CO2-rich environment starts to drop. And so what I do is I try to press while there's still a little sugar in the grapes, in the must, in the fruit, and get that into a closed container from an open tank where it's been fermenting with just a, a tarp over it. And I try to get that into a barrel or tank where it's going to stay for a long time as quickly as possible while it's still fermenting. So then I'm, you know, sticking a bung plug with a hole in it and a bubbler on it so that the gas can get out, but it's protected from gas getting in, from oxygen getting in. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, after it's finished in that enclosed container, uh, bubbling, then just top it up, stick a bung in, and don't open it again for a while. Because the next thing that's going to happen is malolactic conversion. And really, there's you know, no way to stop that. And you don't want to stop that if you're a natural winemaker, because that's just a natural process that's going to happen. And that uh, makes the wine stable, uh, finally. Like, that's the final step in making the wine stable. You've eliminated the sugar through fermentation. Now you're converting the uh, malic acid into lactic acid through the natural process of uh, lactic conversion. And now there shouldn't be there. I mean, there are things, but there's much fewer things in there, especially of you know for anything to eat and any microbes to to live on. You have like a high alcohol, low fuel environment that is also still pretty CO two rich if you've kept it sealed and contained. And the aging process is to allow that. CO2 to slowly dissipate out while you're slowly micro-oxygenating. Um, and what you're now protected by is pH largely and, uh, and then absence of oxygen because your container is full of wine. <clears throat> so those are the, the principles that you're shooting for. There's a lot of things that you can do along the way, different styles that you can do, when you press, how you press, fermenting on skins, off skins, whole cluster, carbonic. Um, these are all the choices you can make, what kind of fruit you use. Uh, if you, you know, the other thing about, you know, if you're making sparkling, of course, going to bottle with CO2 in the 
wine uh, then you basically you know you're you're pretty protected at that point i mean you might lose some color because uh, you don't you know i mean co2 doesn't necessarily prevent color from the pigments from changing but um you're you're in pretty good shape that's why a lot of i would say the, the most the most risk-free way of making a zero zero wine is by making a sparkling wine because you keep the carbon sealed in the wine through pressure in the bottle and that protects the wine also sparkling wines tend to be uh much lower ph because the bubbles help balance that ph and make the wine taste good with that high acidity um with the still wine i think my philosophy at this at this point is just to pay attention so i will i will wait a couple months and then i'll take a sample from the barrel and send it off to ets labs uh to give me an analysis of where the wine is in terms of va and so2 i mean i know what the so2 will be it will be zero uh but in terms of ph and all those things i'll get a reading because you know malolactic is going to raise your ph so let's say you're you're harvesting at 3.4 and a half and you're like ooh you know okay i think i'm 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 safe but the thing to keep in mind is that ph can go up 1 and a half points i mean it can go up to like 3.6 after malolactic and fermentation uh your ph will usually rise and so you just have to keep an eye on that. You might think you're you are in a good range and then you get it tested and it's gone up to, you know, over 3.6 and now you're at that threshold of like, uh-oh, what do I do? Um at that point, if I you know, if my pH was over 3.5 after fermentation over 3.6 for sure and I was already starting to see some VA like over, you know, 0.5, 0.6 grams per liter, I might just you know hit it with 20 to 30 parts per million sulfur depending on the pH um and that would be about it you know and then i can go to bottle with that uh, assuming it's already through malolactic like obviously i wouldn't add sulfur until it's through malolactic conversion so you want to see that your malic's down to below 0 or less than 2 grams or whatever 2 microgram i forget what it is but um yeah you want to make sure that your malic is done and that you're through malic and then you want to then i might say you know what like 20 to 30 parts per million sulfur just to ensure that that va doesn't go up any higher or you know other things don't happen in the bottle uh like mouse or brett or things like that that you you kind of want to inhibit some of these things and then but you know you kind of have to just go for it at that point sort of make a call based on where you think the wine is time is your other friend i mean if you want to just wait it depends on when you have to bottle you know the longer the wait the better sense you have of how stable that wine is you know if it's changing a lot every time you taste it you know if you open every quarter if you're taking a barrel sample every quarter and every quarter you're seeing like massive development of that then you want to you know think about that like uh what's what's going to happen when that goes to bottle i don't know you know i mean if you're okay with that change continuing and and it potentially changing in a bad direction where it's going to end up being vinegar in some of the bottles in the in bottle uh or it's going to yeah i mean you know and any of the other number of things that could happen to it then great you know that's 
then you roll those dice and you go for it. Um, but if you can wait and you can see that that wine is really stable, then you're, you probably can assess that you know, it's not changing from you know quarter to quarter when you take a barrel sample. Then great, like maybe you don't need to add anything. Maybe it's stable. It's it's found its balance, and you just put that in bottle and onward and upward. You know, you've got yourself a zero zero. No sulfur wine. I think it's sort of reading the wine like that. I, I just personally, I want to make sure that when the wine comes to the customer or the drinker, whoever it is, myself, when I open a bottle, I want it to reflect all of the goodness and beauty that was in the, the fruit, that was in the ecosystem from which that fruit came, that represents the hard work of all the people that grew that fruit and tended that ecosystem. And to me, adding 20 to 30 parts per million sulfur to protect that uh, is so much more worthwhile than rolling the dice and potentially letting that turn to vinegar than, than not. Because um, to me, natural wine, and this is bringing it full circle, is all about the vineyard. I think we need to change the focus from like sulfur to protecting the beauty and hard work and amazing farming that's happening out in the vineyard or orchard or wherever the, the ecosystem is where the fruit comes from, that is what you want to protect. That is what you want to showcase with natural wine. That's the reason behind natural wine. It's not because of some obsession with purity that's like Nazi-esque. It's, it's, an, it, it's an attempt to have a probiotic expression of a beautiful terroir. And that terroir is the human's that grew that, the farming that's behind that, and the land and the ecosystem from which that fruit came. And I think that the most important thing to me is protecting that, not protecting my philosophical commitment to being zero zero or adding no sulfur. Because as I've said in other podcasts, it should be quadruple zero. You know, zero chemical inputs in the vineyard and zero exploitation of the humans who are involved in making this process. I mean, there's a lot of zeros that should go into natural wine. Zero ingratitude. <laughs> um, and, and zero ego, <laughs> uh, in my opinion. Um, and those are just as, if not more important than zero sulfur or other additives. So there you go. Um, that's a, a little primer on making natural wine from the way I make it and I hope that's helpful. I'm sure it opens up a lot of questions but uh, I hope it's given a lot of helpful advice as well. All right. Hey, I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode and if it was helpful to you, if you'd like to hear more of it or please dear God, no more ever again. Adam, stop now while you're ahead or while you're behind. Anyway, in any case, if you'd like to give some feedback, please email me at info at centraliswine.com. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thanks a lot.